There were thousands of letters to the IRS seeking guidance and clarity around how are these subsidies going to be applied. And at this point in time, there's still a tremendous lack of clarity around how the money's actually going to flow and what qualifies and what doesn't and when some of these spigots become available. So yes, the promise is out there, but it's still going to be a little while before we see some clarity around how this actually flows into bank accounts. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition hosted by Smart Energy Decisions' own Deborah Channel. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, Deborah digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm Deborah Channel, Editorial and Research Director here at Smart Energy Decisions, and your new host of Smart Energy Voices. Over the past year, we've seen a lot of announcements relating to new technologies that may or may not affect our businesses and institutions. And frankly, it can be overwhelming. That's why we asked Peter Kelly Detweiler, author of The Energy Switch and a longtime friend of SED, to speak at our recent Net Zero Forum. We asked him to address some of the newer technologies, and he's going to attempt to put them in their place by highlighting advantages, drawbacks, the relative state of maturation, and a useful framework for how to think about them and how they might affect your enterprises going forward. You'll hear it in this talk, but Peter is incredibly passionate about the cutting edge of our industry, and he sheds a lot of light on what you can expect in the coming years. So here's Peter. We're going to talk about what's on the radar screen. Typically, on an average day, I spend two to three hours reading. My first newsletters come in from Europe around two in the morning. I have 32 newsletters that I read, and I have a spreadsheet. I'm happy to send it to anyone who wants the URLs. I have a descriptor and a ranking and so on. And one other thing that I offer to everybody who's interested, I do a weekly five-minute video with energy stories from around the world that I think move the needle. Could be regulatory, could be technological, could be some market development. And a number of people here in the room have actually stopped me and told me it's pretty helpful for them because I'll do the work so you don't have to. So what we're going to talk about today are some of the things that I find when I'm out there looking for what's happening in the space and how those are likely to impact your businesses in the years to come. So there's some pretty interesting things going on. First of all, unless we've been under a rock someplace, we know there's a lot of money, floods of money, about to head our way with both the bipartisan infrastructure law and the IRA. And just a few of the things that are out there right now, residential efficiency, which often gets short shrift, $14 billion worth of money. By the way, there's a Utility Dive article that just came out this morning. There were thousands of letters to the IRS seeking guidance and clarity around how are these subsidies going to be applied. And at this point in time, there's still a tremendous lack of clarity around how the money's actually going to flow and what qualifies and what doesn't, and when some of these spigots become available. So yes, the promise is out there, up to $369 billion by some estimates, but it's still gonna be a little while before we see some clarity around how this actually flows into bank accounts. And then there's residential energy improvements, wind and solar and storage tax credits, $128 billion, uh, manufacturing tax credits, a lot of onshoring, 
Um, just this week, there was an announcement that a large Chinese solar manufacturer is teaming up with Invenergy to build a five gigawatt solar panel production facility here in the United States. And it seems like almost every week you're reading about another gigafactory that's being planned for manufacturing somewhere in the United States. So that batteries now and the onshoring of all that become critically important for our future economic ecosystem with a lot of money flowing there. Then we have nuclear credits and carbon capture and storage and clean hydrogen, clean vehicles, clean refueling, advanced nuclear reactors, carbon capture and storage, et cetera, et cetera. So let's talk about, in the next slide, where some of these will apply. Well, wind, solar, and storage, that $128 billion, a lot of that's going to ultimately be reflected in power purchase agreements that you'll be negotiating on one side of the equation or the other. The $36 billion in nukes, some of you might have seen in the last couple of weeks there was an announcement that the Utah Association of Municipalities, it's actually a bunch of Western muni utilities, have thus far agreed to continue forward with New Scale, that modular nuclear power plant that got NRC approval for design, hopefully comes online somewhere around 2028, 2029. Unfortunately, the costs have increased from $58 a megawatt hour to an estimated $89 per megawatt hour. But these utilities say we're still in on this. Also, really interesting last week, X Energy and Dow announced that they're going to work together. X Energy is also a modular nuclear plant. The real challenge they have now is getting their hollow fuel because Russia's the only place from which you can get it. Same thing with Terraform, which is the nuclear plant that was looking to go into Montana or Wyoming. So there's still some challenges here. But we see Dow and X Energy saying, we want to locate a 50 megawatt nuke somewhere on the Gulf Coast for thermal, right? Not power gen for the first primary application, but thermal. And then you see GE Hitachi talking about a 300 megawatt nuclear facility that they would put on site up in Canada where one of the former Candu reactors sits. I think it's in Darlington. And over in Romania and Poland and some of the other Eastern European countries, commitments there for nuclear as well. So maybe this thing starts to pick up steam and go somewhere. And for some of you with large thermal applications, 10 years down the road, you might be looking at a small nuclear plant. And then um, one company, I think it was Westinghouse, just announced that they're moving forward now with documentation on micro-reactors like little five megawatt jobs, the kind of thing you might find in a nuclear submarine. And last fall, a military base in Alaska put out an RFP for a little five megawatt nuke. The fuel comes with it. It lasts about eight years, 10 years, and then you, know, you get a new one, I guess. So some really interesting stuff that seems like it's kind of Jules Verne out in the future. But I will remind folks, in 2009, the amount of installed solar in the United States was 1,000 megawatts. And now we're roughly into the close to 80,000 megawatts for utility scale and another 20, 25,000 sitting on people's rooftops and on the tops of factories and so on. So things that seem improbable, highly uneconomical a while ago, sometimes those tailwinds hit them and they scale up really, really fast. Batteries, we weren't even really having conversations seven or eight years ago about the economic viability of electric transportation or energy storage. And now we're seeing huge amounts of batteries going into the grid. The number going in this year will be double what it was last year. Hydrogen, we'll talk about that in a minute. Carbon capture, some interesting things going on there. 
both direct air, machines that will suck carbon out of the air and sequester it in the ground, maybe in the form of limestone, some of it being used for enhanced oil recovery, which I love the delicious irony there. Lots of stuff around hydrogen, we'll talk about that in a minute, and clearly a lot going on with electric vehicle infrastructure. The feds had released the first, well, there's $5 billion from NEVI, the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure piece. All 50 states were requested to submit applications to the US government for money that would allow them or help them to build out charging infrastructure down the nation's thoroughfares. Every 50 miles or so, you have to have at least four interoperable chargers that can offer 150 kW or more of power to vehicles. They just last week announced the release of the new tranche of another 2.5 billion for off-highway applications to aid municipalities and more rural areas to help them electrify as well. So lots of money coming in through the charging and fueling piece of things, and then stuff like biofuels as well. So some of the things to watch in terms of technology, we talked a little bit about the money side. The tech side, that domestic content piece, I've got a slide on that in a minute. Solar, you're starting to see because of domestic content, uh, thin film begins to gain an edge. First Solar just announced an expansion of its facilities. They have one in Perryville, Ohio. It's been around a long time, relatively speaking, in terms of the solar world. And now we're seeing other companies with thin film, and we're seeing more announcements of photovoltaics, which typically is the lion's share of the solar that we see. And as we mentioned yesterday or discussed, you have the challenges still of the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act, the 201 case with the tariffs around imports from China, the anti-circumvention investigation where they looked at the four countries, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, and Malaysia, where we get 80% of our panels from this country, and looked at the inputs coming into those countries with the idea that, well, maybe there were dumping was coming in from China with components flowing into those countries that then were sort of being laundered, if you will, and then shipped to the United States. And the initial finding is that, yes, a, a significant number of Chinese panel manufacturers are indeed supplying below-cost components to those four countries with those then shipping those to the United States. So that, the technical word is, kludges up our supply chain. And then we have, you know, the nukes that I talked about, storage, we'll talk about some of the technology and some slides to come. Hydrogen, lots to sort out across that value chain right now. There's all kinds of different colors of hydrogen. There's pink, there's blue, there's gray, there's turquoise. Welcome to that world. Some of you will be engaged in it. And the, the transportation I talked about and biofuels, RNG is really moving forward. So let's look at a few of those in the, in the limited time that we have. First, solar. Those of you who are involved in this know domestic content is key. And those IRA domestic content provisions start by saying you look at the two pieces. If there's steel involved for, it could be renewable natural gas or wind or solar. If there's steel in it, if you want domestic content credit, it's got to be 100% iron and steel. If it's manufactured products, unless it's offshore wind where it's only 20%, everything else has to be 40% manufactured process. Now, what that means is part of what the IRS needs to clarify, and those increase up to 55% over time. A lot of the domestic content requirements for electric vehicles and for these energy projects increase over time. 
The idea being we give domestic supply chain a chance to build up. Wind continues to move apace, although in the United States right now, solar is eating wind's lunch. More than half of what's going to be installed this year, according to the Energy Information Administration, is going to be solar. Predominantly in the past, wind was, was leading the way, but now solar is really kicking into gear. But in the wind piece, the trends we're seeing right now are taller towers. The output of the wind is a function of a cube of the speed, so 10 miles an hour versus 20 miles an hour, you get eight times as much output from that turbine. So you want to get up higher, where you don't have the topographical constraints anymore, to access those cleaner and stronger wind flows. How do you do that? Taller towers, longer blades. Problem is, we have a highway system built in the 1950s, the Eisenhower administration interstate highway system. The bridges are 16 feet tall. So how do you get these long blades underneath the bridges, because the cords are so thick, and how do you get the towers to where you want them? Well, there's a company in Pampas here in, in Texas, GE just announced they're fabbing with rolled steel on site, cylindrical towers. They actually bring the machines to the location and build there. And GE's Cypress platform, which is 5.3 megs and extensible to six, and Vestas has some six megawatt terrestrial machines. China's going to 10 very shortly, by the way. A lot of these now are multi-part blades. So you're starting to see industry figure these things out. And that's gonna be the next thing we see. And what it does is it opens up the entire southeastern United States, which hasn't been viable for wind because it hasn't had strong enough aeolian currents. Now when you bring this better tech in, go higher, longer, now it's viable. So some things coming soon to a theater near you that were simply unavailable. And blades, you might have seen the pictures of people trying to crush blades in landfills and they don't crush very well because they were designed to resist the elements for a quarter century. Well now, they're building recyclable blades and Siemens Gamesa just announced they're putting in their first 14 megawatt offshore wind machines with recyclable blades and just a month ago Vesta said, don't have to worry about that anymore. We've figured out a new chemical treatment that dissolves the epoxies so we can take existing blades and break them down and use all the components and make them into new blades. So reputationally these things become important for you as buyers with PPAs because people are gonna start asking those questions. Advanced geothermal, something a little bit further into the future for many folks, but there's two companies right now ever. These guys drill down like a mile deep into the ground, then go sideways using fracking technology with parallel systems and take the Earth's radiative heat, put a heat transfer fluid in, and generate electricity. They just got 91 million euros last week from uh, the Euro European Innovation Group for a project they're building in Munich. And they've tested the drilling capability and announced a couple weeks ago that they successfully drilled through granite in New Mexico. And so maybe they have something there. And a competitor of theirs on small scale that already has a five megawatt project in the works for Google out in the western part of the United States is working now on drilling down and fracking and then pouring water, pumping water into that, allowing that to build up pressure and steam and create some kind of dispatchability with the idea maybe they can create a thermal battery that can follow load. So maybe these things will work, maybe they won't. There's issues around heat transfer and water use and so on, but worth keeping an eye on. At least I'll keep an eye on them so you don't have to.
And then storage, as I mentioned, just going great guns, largely lithium ion. You can see here, blue is pumped hydro. It hasn't grown much at all for years and years and years. These projects, pumped hydro, take about eight to 10 years to build. They typically cost between 600 and $1.2 billion. SMUD, Sacramento Municipal Utility District, abandoned theirs a few years ago because the cost overruns were so great. And they'd already spent, I think it was $10 million on planning, but the price tag just ballooned out so much. But nonetheless, there are 53 pumped hydro storage projects right now going through the permitting process in one way, shape, or form. And some companies like Copenhagen Infrastructure Project looking at multi-thousand megawatt storage projects to firm up wind in particular, and then export firmer flows of power from places like Wyoming to markets like California, if they can get the transmission. And then, of course, we'll see more and more batteries, lithium ion, coming into the scene, typically only cost-effective through about four hours. Those technologies are going to change as we push cobalt out of the system, super expensive, child labor, in the undemocratic Republic of Congo, and 90% of the cobalt is processed in China. So let's push that chemistry out of the way where we possibly can and bring in lithium iron phosphate, which does involve cobalt. But now you're also starting to see chemistries like Ferrisys announced two weeks ago that they will be manufacturing sodium ion batteries, so salt. And the first factory will be done in China this year with vehicles taking salt-based batteries by next year. So all the stuff still in a constant state of flux. And we're going to start to see a bifurcation between lithium-based technologies, principally moving and staying in the transportation space. Why? Because lithium is the lightest metal. That's the reason it's in batteries to start with, because you don't want to carry around super heavy stuff after the energy's been expended in that battery. That's why it's in transportation. But if you don't care about size and weight, you can move in other directions with stationary storage. And so we start to see things like this company here, Form Energy. A couple things about this that are great and one significant drawback. The first thing is it can give you 100 hours of duration, and it's based on iron. It's reversible rust. So Form just got $450 million of investments. They're down to three, I think, sites where they're going to build a gigafactory. And they take huge amounts of iron and rust it and then unrust it, releasing energy in the process. They've already signed four contracts, one with Great River Energy, which is going to be building that thing this fall in Cambridge, Minnesota, to firm up. It's only one megawatt, 100 megawatt hours to firm up wind. Second contract is with Georgia Power next year, 15 megawatts, 1,500 megawatt hours, also to firm up renewables. And then just within the last month, two contracts announced with XL Energy at 10 megawatts each and a gigawatt hour of energy, 100 hours of duration. Biggest challenge here is round trip efficiency. Your RTE is 40%. So you need a pricing environment where there's a pretty clear economic arbitrage opportunity, that buy low or store low and sell release high. But nonetheless, we're now starting to see for the first time some of these technologies. Another one, Noon, is a startup company that breaks CO2 into carbon powder and oxygen and stores the O2 in tanks. They believe, they just raised the first 20-some-odd million dollars, that they have something that's cost-effective that could compare with lithium-ion eventually 
and deliver long duration. That one's still further out on the radar screen. This one's going to be real really soon. So that's kind of exciting. From my perspective, this could change a lot of things, except that RTE is kind of ugly. Modular nukes, we mentioned before, the Dow one, and you know, other facilities around the world that are really starting to pick up steam. China is already building its first modular nukes. Not like the old ones, light water reactors, 1,000 megawatts, 1,200 megawatts. These things have the potential to be daisy-chained together with fail-safe, yes, we've heard that before, but fail-safe architectures. So if the system goes down, unlike Zaporizhia, where every time the Russians bomb it and cut the lines, the Ukrainians have 10 days worth of diesel, and if they run out of diesel, then we have a meltdown, right? These new facilities, if they get disconnected from the system, they just flop down and go inert, and nothing happens. And that's one of the beauties of them, but of course, you're still going to have the NIMBY issue explaining that to people, that as soon as you hear the word nuke, kind of hair goes up. Hydrogen? We'll know more shortly. The most interesting thing going on right now are these hydrogen hubs. So the DOE said, we're going to spend $7 billion for between six and 10 hydrogen hubs in the United States. And there were, what was it, 79 different entrants. A hydrogen hub has a supply component, a demand component, and some kind of infrastructure in between, the storage and transportation. So they're trying to group the suppliers and the end users into these economic ecosystems and then have them submit these proposals to the DOE. 33 of the proponents received letters of encouragement this winter to go ahead and submit more formal applications. And those are going to be due later this year with final decisions rendered relatively early next year. And then we'll start to watch these ecosystems take place. Assuredly, at least one of them will be on the Gulf Coast because we already have a huge hydrogen economy down there for refining, for fertilizer, and there's a thousand miles of hydrogen pipeline already extant. So it makes a lot of sense. You see companies like AES, and I think it's Air Liquide, announcing enormous projects with wind and solar and hydrogen. And Maersk, the shipping company, they're building 18, I think it's 18, it could be 19 container ships, all of which will take methanol, CH3O3, that is hydrogen-based, that will be fueling those ships. And they're signing offtake agreements to take that hydrogen from the Gulf Coast. So this is now starting to become real instead of just conceptual. And yes, there's going to be a lot of waste involved in this. The biggest problem with hydrogen is a simple one. You take green energy and take those electrolyzers and break water into H2 and O, eventually O2, and then you have to either compress it or liquefy it because it only has a third the energy in it of CH4, of methane. So it's not very dense. That electron in the atom likes to take a really long excursion around the nucleus. So you've got to compress it or liquefy it to economically use it. And that takes more energy, and then ultimately you store it and put it in a fuel cell or a generator or turbine, and at the end of that, you've lost two-thirds of the raw energy you put into it. That's the big knock on hydrogen. The RTE is even lower than that reverse rust battery. And so there will be some situations where it simply doesn't make a lot of sense to use hydrogen. Sounds cool, but it's not going to pencil. In other places where we're trying to decarbonize our economy, we're already using a lot of gray hydrogen today. Let's drop green hydrogen in instead. So that's where you're going to see the first activity in that space. And then, 
Does anybody know where they were on November 21st, 2019? Nor do I. I should have, though. That was the first day that Anheuser-Busch delivered a carbon-free load of beer. Kind of an epical moment in the history of humanity. And they did it with a Nikola truck, a hydrogen truck. It surprised me that it wasn't a lithium-ion truck, because batteries give you a 90% round-trip efficiency versus the 33, 35 for hydrogen. But nonetheless, they delivered this shipment of beer without burning hydrocarbons. Pretty cool. So what we'll see in the transportation space is all smaller passenger vehicles and vans and all those are going to go electric because hydrogen doesn't make sense there. When lithium-ion can give you 90% round-trip efficiency, why waste your electricity to convert into hydrogen and then back into power? But longer haul, maybe you know Tesla's truck, the semi goes 500 miles with a full load, so they say. That's probably, for now anyway, the frontier. But if you have in the future autonomous trucks, and we already have autonomous deliveries in places like Arizona, where the driver sits there doing a crossword puzzle or whatever, and the trucks are doing the routes, they're already doing that. The first place we'll probably see autonomous driving is in highways with trucks, with pelotons of trucks. And when you don't have any bathroom or food breaks, time really becomes money. If you don't have people, you don't have to worry about rest breaks. These things could go coast to coast. And in those particular instances where time is money and you don't want to be carrying, in the old world, after 500 miles, you've got to take a bathroom break anyway and get some food. If nobody's in the truck, now all you care about is speed of fueling, right? So now there's the possibility and how much weight you're carrying in that truck, dead weight. You know, with 500 miles, you're carrying a ton of dead weight in that truck by the time you're finished with your route. Hydrogen, once you burn it and it goes out water as a tailpipe, you're not carrying that weight anymore. So there is still potentially the economic argument, especially with autonomous trucking, that the longer haul vehicles want to charge up really fast, and they can't yet do that with battery charging, they could with hydrogen, And they don't carry all that dead weight around. So that's where we may see H2 win the transportation game. But all the short-haul stuff, eh. Flights, maybe as well. A 40-seater in Washington State about two weeks ago, portion of the 15-minute flight was on an H2-based engine. And the airline industry is a notoriously hard-to-abate sector, so we might see zipping people around through the air, ultimately hydrogen-based. And then the last slide methane and renewable natural gas. Supplies are still limited. There are only so many landfills, and if you look at future studies, we would never supplant more than, say, 20% of today's total natural gas consumption. But nonetheless, there are a couple things that argue for a lot more biogas and RNG. And the first is that methane traps 80 times more of the Earth's radiative heat in the first 20 years than CO2 does. And so, for example, California has identified landfills as massive GHG emitters. So start to capture more of that and then put it into replacing your dirty fuels with a clean biogas. So you're starting to see utilities like National Grid in Massachusetts and New England saying, we're going to clean up our gas system by using RNG. So that's another major trend we can expect to see in the years to come, and certainly some of you will be involved in that. The majority right now of RNG doesn't go into pipelines. It goes into transportation. There are plenty of engines that can burn both untreated biogas and cleaned up RNG.
Thanks, Peter. I still don't understand how he reads 40 plus newsletters a week, but I'm just going to assume that Smart Energy Decisions is one of them. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for tuning into this podcast and being part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it as well. And to learn how you can become part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, just click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're honored to have the opportunity to share these conversations with leaders of the energy transition as part of this podcast, on our website, and at our events. And it's all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. 